next question I have. Um, the foundation of effective altruism hinges itself largely on like the power of abstract reasoning and statistical facts. Uh, but many people feel that the best way to encourage someone to give is through emotional, emotional, tangible appeals. Uh, how do you think about this difference? And sort of what strategies do you personally employ to make fact and reason effective methods for promoting giving? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Actually, it's very relevant to some empirical research that I'm doing with a couple of other people in, with more experience in doing research in psychology. We're actually testing uh, whether rational arguments can have the same drawing power if put in a particular way as more emotional appeals. Um, now, I, I agree with your statement that so far the evidence seems to suggest that they can't. Uh, we're also testing what we call a combined version, which uh, uses some rational argument and some emotional appeal. There's some evidence suggesting that putting in more facts and figures actually diminishes the overall appeal, um, dilutes it, dilutes the emotional strength. Um, we're seeing whether that is, is the case. Um, obviously, for effective altruists, it's a dilemma because you do want to have the largest possible impact that you can have. Um, but at the same time, we want to get people into a frame of mind where they do some research or they think about facts and figures. It's no good just having people respond to emotional appeals because then they're likely to give less effectively. Um, and you know, there are good arguments for saying that even if people gave somewhat less, let's say people give even 50% less to rational appeals and emotional appeals, if they give to really effective uh, non-profit organizations, that 50% might be doing much more than the 100%. Uh, so there is a there is a dilemma there. Uh, I think that we do need to use some emotion in getting uh, a reasonable number of people involved, but I think we need to go for that combination where we encourage people uh, to look at the facts to look at how much good they're doing as well. So that's why I'm hopeful that the research will show that the com combination of rational arguments and emotional appeal does not significantly diminish the uh, response that people give. Yeah, I look forward to, to reading that research. I'm interested. Do you know uh, where that will be published or where people can read that once it's, once it's ready? Uh, yes, it's likely. I can't say certain because it hasn't been accepted, but um, we submitted, uh, you know, there's this proposal, there's this way of working now with some psychology journals that you submit the hypothesis beforehand so that uh, uh, even if the hypothesis isn't confirmed, they will publish it. The idea is to stop the publication bias that psychology has suffered from of uh, only publishing the occasional successful study. Uh, so that is in, uh, we've had that uh, pre, pre sort of plan accepted by the Journal of uh, Decision-Making. So okay. um, we're hopeful that that will appear in that journal within a few months. All right, yeah. So another question that I wanted to ask you was, um, we know a lot of what EA does well, um, but I'm curious what you think uh, the EA movement and the philosophy, the way of thinking about giving, what does it miss? What doesn't it account for, if anything? Well, the, the usual objection is that it doesn't account for uh, ways of producing change that are large, 
sort of long-term uh, and systematic change. So, so because EA is focused on evidence, um, it's relatively easy to get good evidence that distributing bed nets saves the lives of children in areas that are prone to malaria. Um, that's something you can test, you can do randomized trials and so on. Um, suppose somebody uh, says, um, you know, well, what's really important is getting rid of corruption in a society. Um, you know, good governance is really important. And there are plenty of reasons for thinking that is really important. But that will be, even if you just focus on one particular country, that's going to be many years of effort to try to change the culture. It may completely fail, it may succeed. And if it succeeds, it will no doubt pay off really big. But uh, it's very hard to get evidence that a particular campaign to reduce corruption is going to work. Um, every country is different, the context is different. Um, and anyway, you can't, you know, as with, you, there are hundreds of villages where people are suffering from malaria and kids are dying from malaria. It's easy to do a properly randomized trial with statistical power. You clearly can't do that when you're trying to change the culture of a country. So um, that's the, the big problem, I think, to say, uh, what can effective altruists say about people who come up with a plausible strategy for making a big systematic change that might affect many millions of people, but um, by the nature of what they're doing, can't produce the kind of evidence that effective altruists have been looking for. Yeah, that sparks in my mind the thought of climate change. And um, it's curious because it is such a large existential issue. What role do you think philanthropy more generally has to play in a, in a situation like that? And how does how, how would you, in your mind, differentiate between private-based philanthropy, philanthropy versus government-based um, philanthropy and aid? Yeah, um, usually the term philanthropy is reserved for private, you know, either individuals or foundations. Um, and we think of government as spending money on programs that will be beneficial rather than as philanthropy. Um, but I think both of these sectors have an important role in climate change. Uh, I think government is absolutely essential because ultimately I think we have to put a price on carbon in, in one way or another, either a cap and trade scheme or a carbon tax. Um, we have to do something so that the, the real costs of um, putting carbon into the atmosphere are borne by the consumer, by the purchaser. Um, uh, rather than by the, the third parties, the externalities. You know, every, every economist will admit that uh, the justifications of the market depend on the externalities being priced into the product. And it's perfectly clear that in the case of greenhouse gas emissions, they're not. So we have a, a clear case of market failure here. Um, so governments need to do something to remedy that. I don't see that private philanthropy can remedy. What private philanthropy can do uh, is well, one thing obviously is to support uh, organizations that are trying to persuade the government to do this and are trying to educate the public to be aware of the importance of the government government doing this so that there is a strong electoral support for governments to tackle climate change in a serious way um, and not uh, and, and the electorate won't be seduced by people saying oh well it's a myth or it's you know it's a hoax or um, it's not going to happen or we can make no difference or, or whatever it, it might be. Uh, so yes, philanthropy can play an important role in, in doing that. Uh, philanthropy also, uh, or you might want to call it um, sort of uh, social enterprise, or, um, 
can play a role in, in developing alternatives to the use of fossil fuels. Um, I know that uh, Bill Gates, for example, has put money into um, alternatives that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions, into alternative sources of energy that are clean, um, and other social entrepreneurs have put money into developing uh, uh, cellular meat production, which would reduce the greenhouse gas emissions coming from the livestock industry. Um, so yeah, there are definitely things that philanthropy can do, um, but they need to be focused on ways in which you can make a, a big difference. Right. So um, a lot of a big part of your argument for giving uh, in part relies on the idea that many people in the developed world spend money on things that they don't need. And that money would do more good in the hands of the extremely poor. Um, to me, this signifies that many people in the developed world feel that just managing to cover necessities is an insufficient way to live. So according to your philosophy, how can people who currently rely on their material wealth as a source of meaning and happiness, uh, how can they learn to be just satisfied with the basics? I think a lot of people are, are not actually satisfied with relying on material wealth. I, I think there is a significant segment of the community uh, that is looking for more than that, looking for more meaning in their lives and more fulfillment than simply acquiring a lot of consumer goods. Uh, um, you know, this this sort of becomes popular from time to time, uh, sort of uh, it's called voluntary simplicity a couple of decades ago. Now people talk about minimalism. Um, but I think it all stems from this feeling that uh, there has to be more to my life than um, earning as much as I can and uh, living in as big a house as I can and buying as many of the latest gadgets as I can. Uh, so I think we can uh, move people away from that to a to an extent. Anyway, I, I'm not saying that you know we have to completely abandon all consumer goods and live in the absolutely simplest way possible. I think that's probably not realistic uh, if we want a mainstream movement. But in terms of thinking about, um, I want my life to have a meaning that is more than simply the amount I earn and the consumer goods that I can afford to, to buy. Uh, yeah, I, I think that can be part of the mainstream. How do you think that we effective altruists can work to convince those people that that this is a viable thing to do and that something they should consider. Do you have you thought about ways to approach the problem of, of individuals who have a lot of wealth and who sort of rely on it for pleasure that they sort of derive meaning from? Uh, you know, what um, I've been thinking about and other people at uh, uh, The Life You Can Save, the organization I founded, have been thinking about is certainly how to attract uh, people with wealth to think about the kinds of things that effective altruism thinks about. Um, and we've certainly had some success, you know, we've got some some very wealthy people who have been uh, supporting us and donating to, to EA. Uh, whether, you know, maybe these are not the people who particularly enjoyed their wealth, um, it's hard to say, you know, of all the uh, billionaires and uh, near billionaires in the world that um, have become involved in in the EA movement in, in one way or another. Perhaps they're just the minority who don't particularly enjoy their wealth and therefore are looking for some other meaning. But um, it's certainly significant and uh, can look at the 
the Gates Giving Pledge uh, for billionaires, which has over 200 people now who signed it. That's a very significant pool of money. Um, now, unfortunately, the Giving Pledge doesn't involve really effective altruism necessarily. It's just about pledging to give away uh, at least half of one's wealth. But um, still, it's a it's a step forward, and uh, I think I think we can motivate quite a lot of people to say. Uh, I want to do more than simply be very wealthy and enjoy that wealth. Yeah. So this, with this next question, I want to zoom out a little bit. Um, do you believe that truly selfless giving is possible, or do you think that all giving is rooted in a form of, in some form of self gratification? I think that the the, the question uh, has a kind of assumption about what is self-interest in it um, and so some people will say well you're not really being uh, unselfish about this because you get pleasure from giving uh, and therefore you're just as selfish as i am who don't give at all but get pleasure from counting my money or whatever it might be um, but i think that's a mistake i think that um you know yes i, I I encourage people to give on the basis of saying you will find it fulfilling well uh, or will add meaning to your life. So, you know, you could say that's a kind of self-gratification. Now you have meaning and fulfillment in your life. Um, sure. But what we what we want for the world is that more and more people get that meaning and fulfillment or if you like self-gratification from um, knowing that they're helping others, from knowing that they're reducing suffering. Um, reducing premature death, uh, leaving the planet a better place for future generations than it otherwise would have been, reducing the suffering of animals, for example, perhaps as well. Um, if, if we had uh, a world in which most people saw that as one of their major sources of self-gratification, that would be a vastly better world than the one that we're living in. So um, I think we, we need to think a little bit differently about this, what it is to be selfish and um, what you could think of as kind of enlightened self-interest is in harmony with what effective altruists are, are saying, that is doing, making the world a better place. Yeah, that, that really harmonizes with the way that I think about the issue because a lot of times people will use that as an excuse to not give as they'll say, oh, it's actually selfish because you're only doing it so you can feel better. But realistically, like you said, if both I feel better and the other person has been helped, then it's almost double as good in, in sort of a weird way. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's right. Yeah. So um, just the last question I have for you is, is there anything that you would want watching this to do? This is a, your audience is primarily undergraduate students or faculty members at a university. Um, what's their next step if they want to work toward being uh, a more effective altruist? Uh, so I think forming some kind of organization, uh, perhaps on, on campus, um, is a good step because uh, another fact about human psychology is that people are, are more likely to do something if they see that others are doing it as well, if they have the support of a community of effective altruists. So I think community giving is really important. And when you when you have a community of effective altruists at GWU or any campus, you can uh, work with one of the various larger groups that are um, involved in this. Uh, 
Uh, One for the World, for example, is a a student-based organization that gets people to pledge to give 1% of their income to uh, uh, making the world a better place. It's it's a pretty small percentage, and I think some people can do more than 1%, but it's certainly a start. Uh, So that would be one organization that you might think about connecting up with, but uh, you can connect up with other uh, EA organizations uh, as well. So uh, I think that that's a, a good step to develop that and then meet in various ways, you know, sometimes to have meetings to discuss the ideas, to introduce the ideas to more people, but sometimes just to meet and socialize and talk about, uh, if you like, internally about, you know, well, where are you going to? What do you think of this organization or that charity or well, what, are you, what career are you thinking of? Um, uh, I think there's a lot of things that can be done in, in that direction. Great. Thank you so much, Peter. On, on behalf of my university and uh, Give Well GW, I, I really appreciate your time. And Great. Very good. Thanks. For the, I'm glad you're doing this, guy. Good to yeah. talk to you. Great to talk Bye. to you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.